electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. We're going to get to the sell-off in stocks with the Investment Committee in just a moment. First, though, let's go to Eamon Jabbers. He is in Washington. He has breaking news for us right now on Amazon and the FTC. Eamon, what do we know? Scott, the Federal Trade Commission filed an antitrust lawsuit against Amazon this morning, alleging that the tech company has used interlocking, quote, anti-competitive and unfair strategies to illegally maintain monopoly power. The FTC was joined in the suit by 17 state attorneys general. They say Amazon's actions allow it to stop rivals and sellers from lowering prices, degrade quality for shoppers, overcharge sellers, and stifle uh, innovation. The suit represents one of the Biden administration's most sweeping and aggressive moves to date to break up what it sees as consolidated power in the hands of the tech giants. The administration hopes that this will both lower prices through new competition and spark new innovations that will help the economy. The FTC says Amazon's alleged schemes impact hundreds of billions of dollars in retail sales every year. In a statement, FTC chair Lena Khan said... Today's lawsuit seeks to hold Amazon to account for those monopolistic practices and restore the lost promise of free and fair competition. The suit alleges the anti-competitive conduct occurs in two markets, the online superstore market that serves shoppers and the market for online marketplace services that are purchased by sellers. The alleged tactics here include anti-discounting measures and conditioning sellers' ability to obtain prime eligibility on using Amazon's costly fulfillment service. The FTC says it is seeking a permanent injunction in federal court that would prohibit Amazon from engaging in that conduct, Scott. And I should say that over the past half hour, uh, Lena Khan held a press availability with reporters. I asked her what the ultimate outcome here is. Is she seeking a breakup of Amazon? Uh, She did not say that. She did not go that far. She said that this is all about determining whether or not Amazon has liability in this case. But then she gave another statement which sort of gave an indication into her thinking which, in which she said that ultimately this is about the scale and size of Amazon, the feedback loop of all these uh, different mechanisms and interlocking agreements working with each other. She said all that together is more powerful than all of those individual taxi- tactics would be on their own. Seems to indicate to indicate to me, Scott, that there is a possibility that the government would like to see something like a breakup of Amazon down the line. They are not saying that now, though. This is all about determining whether or not Amazon has liability. We will reach out to Amazon and bring you, of course, anything they have to say about this very soon. Scott, back over to you. Appreciate it very much. Uh, Eamon, a couple things. Uh, Liability, you hear that and you think fine, would be the most logical outcome in, in, in terms of remedy. And also, this is not Lena Khan's nor the FTC's first dust up with Amazon even this year, is it? 
Yeah, no, look, I mean, this is an FTC that's been very aggressive, and they have not won every time they've been aggressive. So I think we should look at this in the context of, you know, the FTC not able uh, earlier this year to block Microsoft Activision, for example, as one measure they sought to step in between. So, uh, you know, there's no indication necessarily that the FTC will be successful here. You can imagine the scale of Amazon's defense here. This is one of the most powerful and lucrative companies in the world. It is going to mount an intensive defense, you can imagine. Uh, We'll hear from them shortly, uh, I, I believe, uh, and we'll see what they have to say. But they're going to deploy uh, battalions of lawyers at this, and we'll see what happens. Yeah, we will. I mean, Amazon paid a $25 million fine in an earlier consumer protection case uh, from the FTC against Amazon. We'll see. Eamon, I appreciate your reporting very much. That's Eamon Jaffers best, live for us in, in D.C. We do have our investment committee here, of course. Josh Brown, Stephanie Link, and Liz Young, all with me at Post 9. Uh, which is helpful today. Josh, uh, you and Steph obviously own Amazon. You want to give me what your takeaway is from, um, from what Eamon reported? So, so it might be too soon to have a takeaway per se, but I think what's going on here is a fairly novel use of antitrust law. Certainly there's not a lot of precedent for going after a company because, in fact, they are lowering prices for consumers too much. It's a, it's a, it's a very strange thing, and I understand the point the point being that it's really Amazon's logistics that sellers rely on. And when Amazon competes against sellers on its own platforms and it brings to bear all of these interlocking technologies, it makes it almost impossible for someone else to win. That part I kind of understand, but there are competitors. This is not a situation where Amazon completely owns e-commerce. They're just the best at it, but quite frankly, they're losing market share everywhere. And it's very difficult, in my view, to call them a monopolist when you consider the fact Amazon's online shopping business advanced only 5% in the last quarter. You compare that to Walmart, 24% growth in e-commerce. Compare that to Shopify, which is a great option for all of these third-party sellers. Their revenues were up 31% last quarter. If we're talking about cloud, it's the same story. Amazon's cloud segment, AWS, grew 12% last quarter. Take a look at Microsoft's cloud business, Azure. It grew 27%. So Amazon is actually losing share in real life. If you look at data, I know that people have feelings about it too. They feel that Amazon is ubiquitous, hard to compete with, et cetera. But realistically, this is not a traditional monopoly. We are not talking about turn of the century, gilded age type stuff here. You know, Steph, I feel like when, whenever we talk about, you know, an FTC case regarding one of the tech giants, and remember, we've talked about a number of issues with, you know, the government going after big tech over the last handful of years. I find that investors that I ask often yawn. Yeah. Shareholders also always suggest, well, you know, it is what it is. It's political. Uh, it'll be a fine. No big whoop. <laughs> Yep. Is that the way you feel today? <laughs> uh, exactly. I think the stock, though, certainly will be volatile, right? Especially since it's up 51% year to date. And it's not exactly cheap. It's cheaper than it's been in the last 10 years, but it's not cheap. Uh, and also, you have higher interest rates, so that's going against growth in tech in general. First and foremost, I think this is going to take years. Yeah. That's number one. Number two, if they split up this company, I bet you the stock goes higher because you can then appreciate pure plays, right? AWS, which Josh said grew 12%. It's stabilizing in terms of growth. Maybe it can reaccelerate. Retail, the retail business, margins were double expectations. And the company thinks they can get back to old highs in terms of operating margins. So profitability on the retail side is improving. So I actually think a split, if it happens, it would be positive. And then finally, 
this company just generated $6 billion in free cash flow last quarter alone. Any amount of fine they're going to be able to handle. So let's talk about the markets more, more broadly um, today. Tech's obviously down, and Amazon's among the stocks. As you see, even before this news hit, that, that was down. We're pacing for the worst quarter, Liz, in a year. We've given up 4300 now on the S&P. Dow's below its 200-day moving average on an intraday basis. I've got 7 of 11 S&P sectors below their 200-day uh, as well, and 17 Dow components. More than half the Dow is below its 200-day moving average um, right now. How do we view this as a you know, rough month is uh, winding down? Well, rolling off those stats sounds scary, but the reality is that the local high was July 31st, and the drawdown's been reasonably orderly since then. And we've had rising 10-year yields. We've got a 10-year that since May is up 120 basis points. So it's natural that stocks should pull back. There has been this huge dislocation between where yields have gone and what PEs have done. PEs have continued to rise as yields have risen. So I think that a lot of this is reasonably rational. The signal that we're getting right now from the market, both from industrials and the Dow, just because the Dow is sort of that sentiment for cyclicality, is that maybe people aren't as confident that we will avert recession, maybe not as confident that we will avert a contraction in the economy. And I think that that's also healthy. I think there needs to be a healthy amount of skepticism, which we were missing through the end of July. Okay, I feel like we've got, you know, the, the major issue, Steph, at hand is what still is a pretty strong economy, and that's obviously good, okay, versus too strong of an economy, which leads to higher rates, which leads to more sticky inflation, which is bad. Now, you, by virtue of the moves that you've made in the market, continue to bet on the strong economy trumping everything else, because you must. If your new buys are Cisco and Deer, mm -hmm. that, that says I believe in this economy over everything else, and soft landing is in my playbook. And thus, these types of stocks are going to do well. Well, these stocks are also trading at 12 and 13 times forward estimates, and I do feel pretty good about the estimates. And that's the whole reason why I'm optimistic, because the economy has hung in there for now, driven by the consumer, by jobs, by wages, pockets of manufacturing with $2 trillion of stimulus into the infrastructure segment of the economy. That is what is keeping us kind of alive, if you will, right? It's offsetting all of these unknowns with the Fed, with higher oil prices. By the way, on the industrials, I would also say a headwind is the dollar. Mm -hmm. The dollar has absolutely been much stronger than what most people have expected. So, yeah, I get the concerns, but the economy has been able to handle it for now, and that leads me to earnings, right? And, and so I have to feel good about earnings for me to be more bullish, and I feel good, at least on Cisco and Deer, I think there's opportunity here, both of these stocks are down. Cisco's down 9% from its high. Deer's down 11% year to date. And I think there are a lot of great characteristics of both of these companies. And we can go into it if you want to. But it goes back to the bigger picture of earnings. And I think earnings last quarter troughed. They were down 4% year over year. I think that the better demand, the better sales that's going to actually be, it's underappreciated. And I think you're going to see operating. The coming earnings though. season is going to start as it always does with the banks. How do you think the reception's going to be? Are we going to cheer because they made a lot more money because in nominal terms, rates are higher? Or are we going to say, oh, my God, the IPO calendar sort of came back and then yeah, sputtered? Couple, yeah. And you, the housing market is like uh, Superman frozen in the uh, whatever <laughs> that material. Like, like which, 
it, which like narrative do you think is going to start earnings season well, off, I think considering capi- those two? Capital markets is definitely improving, and I think that is definitely troughed. I think you will see it improve in the second half of the year. Bank of America last week alone reiterated guidance for net interest income and net interest margins, right. and numbers have already come down dramatically for the space. So yeah, maybe that's not going to be the liftoff to the market, the bank earnings, but I don't think they're going to be a disaster, right? And I think the big five, six are taking a lot of market share from the regionals, and that is in their favor. So I, then I look at American Express, and they're talking about loan growth of a, up 18% in August alone. So you don't buy the narrative that stimulus for everywhere is, is running thin, and it's going to continue to run thin, and the consumer is going to run out of money as that runs thin, and the economy's absolutely going to slow because of lag effects that we've yet to see. You don't I'd buy I'd, that? I'd buy some of it. I'd buy some of it. What I part think, of it? I think we're going to slow. How could we not, right? How can housing not slow more with over 7.5% mortgage, 30-year mortgage rates? The thing is, is that 90% of, consu- of people that have a mortgage have it under 5%. So existing home sales have been miserable. I'll give you that. But new home sales were up 32% last year over year. Last short term, it's a bigger headwind for uh, auto sales. Uh, that's a much, much tougher market to borrow into as a buyer. The housing market, it's kind of like, all right, can't sell, can't buy, whatever. Right. We'll, st- we'll stay put. But you gotta, you got to look at jobs. That's at the end of the day. Initial claims are the leading indicator. And you're at 216,000 on a four-week moving basis average, right? So if jobs start to go in the other direction, we get to 300, 320, 350, I start to worry. But we're going in the opposite direction, which is amazing. Well, what happens, though, Liz, if, is part of what I asked you know, earlier, if, if rates keep going up because the economy is too strong. What if the 10-year, for example, hits 5%, no less 7%, like you know, Jamie Dimon says, I think people should be prepared for higher oil, higher oil gas, uh, higher rates, said the world may not be prepared for the Fed at 7%, that according to the Times of India. I mean, what if, he doesn't necessarily have to nail the number, but what happens if he nails the direction? <laughs> and, and rates, in, as, as a matter of fact, haven't peaked yet. Is that a problem? Yeah, I, nobody's prepared for 7%. I don't, I don't think anybody rationally looks at that and thinks that it's in the near-term horizon. 5% would be a big mental threshold for equity holders, and I think we would continue to see a sell-off. If it happens in a spike, we probably see more volatility in the market. And look at the VIX right now. I mean, it's quietly been rising, right? It's still under 20, but around 18. It's higher than it's been since spring. So it's up 35% from the lows. Exactly, which is scary, <laughs> right? It's still, and still below 20 it's still somehow. still below 20, right. Wild. But it's been quietly rising, and strength under the surface in the market has been quietly weakening. So rates may continue to go up, right? I think the bigger risk in the near term with rates rising is, number one, you've got companies that need to refinance debt. Small caps are probably the most vulnerable in that space. They're not going to be able to refinance all of it. You've got a maturity wall in corporate debt that starts to become an issue in 2024, really becomes a bigger issue in 2025. But as we know, markets look forward. So if people start to get worried that companies cannot roll it over at those rates, there's going to be stress in especially places like the high yield market or the corporate I w- I bond agree market. With, I want to agree with something you just said, is, um, if you'll permit me. It's good. Please. Yeah, okay. By all means. Proceed. <laughs> <laughs> the strength underlying to me is the big story. And I talk to traders and people that are like living inside of uh, the market. And, and 
This is, to me, what's notable, what's changed in the last week or so. So August was not a great month for stocks. Most of September, not so great. But what's really changed here, what's picking up speed, the breadth of the S&P 500 components themselves, about 8% of S&P 500 names are now at 52-week lows. Not just statistically, but some very big, important stocks. I know we'll get to Disney, we'll talk Nike, we'll talk about some of them. Um, That's starting to weigh on sentiment. Uh, And then back to stats, about 20% of S&P 500 names have an RSI uh, that's that's, uh, below 30. 30 being considered like where we say stocks are oversold. Look, I told you this. That's not 17, enough for, the, for us to say the washout is over yet. You know, the, the names that we're talking about today, 17 Dow components, as I mentioned to, to all of you earlier, below their 200-day. Um, Amex, Boeing, Salesforce, Disney, yeah. Dow, Goldman, Home Depot, Honeywell, J&J, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, 3M, Merck, Nike, Generals. across all Z, sorts yeah. of sectors we're talking about. Yeah. Th- that's, you know, that's just showing some technical damage. Um, within the market with things that you look at, but, but again, I don't, but, I, et but, I, but again, like if we're looking for like, all right, when is this summer swoon? What do we want to call it? It's not really a correction yet. Uh, when, when is this at its end? I, my point is I need to see a lot more than 20% of the S&P names being technically oversold below that 30 RSI. Uh, we're, you know, I, I feel as though we have more work to do, of course, that could change, but like as of right now, it doesn't look like we're done yet. The problem is there's an alternative. There are a couple That's of right. alternatives. That hurts. Right? Fixed income, cash. You could get five percent on your cash, right? So like, like I, I understand, more. right? And so more, right? But and how so, do you keep making a, a more bullish case than most for the stock market? Well, I'm thinking about. Look, I am not. It's not a hundred percent like bullish. I didn't say hundred percent. I just I'm said looking, more bullish than I'm, most. I'm look, well, You're buying be, stocks like Cisco of the econ- and, because of, and because, Deer. Because the economy be is positive. running. Because the economy is running above trend, and the Atlanta Fed GDP tracker is at four point nine percent. Even if we end up at three percent. That's really good. That's really good. And to your point earlier, though, what's bad is that inflation will stay elevated. So there are puts and takes, Scott. But I think when I can find blue chip companies with stellar balance sheet, number one in the industry, on sale with margin upside, and if I think that the economy is going to hang in there, demand upside, sales upside, that's to me very compelling. You know what I'm thinking about as you you say that? Um, Blue chip companies with, with... pristine balance sheets where demand's going to remain good. I'm talking about mega cap tech, which the NASDAQ has been getting hit worse than the others, right? It's down 4% over a week. Um, Rising rates have had a more psychologically difficult and tough impact on, on, on the performance of those stocks. So why wouldn't in a more uncertain world, Liz, people continue to go to those stocks. Bank of America's flow show, they see the biggest outflows for the second consecutive week uh, in tech. That money continues to come out at a time where maybe the dynamic says that those are the stocks that are gonna continue to do the best in a more uncertain environment. Well, I think they will because of muscle memory to some degree. And remember, a lot of these stocks, the Nasdaq 100 was up, what, 35% through summer. So giving a little bit back, and again, we're not in correction phase yet, giving a little bit back is really still keeping these quite afloat. And I do think investors are conditioned to go back to mega cap tech as that defense trade. 
the issue is that it's been the trade that is supposed to work in every environment. It's been working in rising, it's been working in falling, it's been working as defense, offense, all of it. And there are headlines now coming out about a lot of these companies. All the headlines are different, but there are headlines coming out that are affecting company-specific sales that I think could send some of it into a little bit more volatile of a territory. But the reality of what happens in a business cycle is that large caps do outperform as we stay in this late cycle behavior. So I would expect investors to still have an appetite, a buying appetite for that. Mm -hmm. And if a pullback continues, they do look more attractive on a valuation basis. Well, I feel like the most important question, Josh, in the market is whether the buy the dip is still alive, at least in those names. They are the biggest ones in the market. And if you look at the declines over a week, Alphabet's down seven and a quarter percent. Amazon's down seven and a half. You have sort of de declines of a lesser extent, maybe half as much from some of the other names. But nonetheless, you know, a Apple's at 172. I've heard suggestions from even analysts who love the stock um, suggest it could go to 160. Of course it could. Anything, we just, look, we, anything can happen. We've seen crude oil trade at negative 10. So the idea that something could, of course it could. But I, I honestly think that, to Stephanie's point, if you're talking about the next six months, it may in fact turn out that a five and a quarter percent T-bill is the best investment. Most people are not investing for, for six months from now. Most people are thinking about 10 years, 15 and 20 years. And I think they will default back to this idea that if I can buy a secular grower with a great balance sheet, mean, I'd rather do that. I, 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 I hate no to problem. interrupt you and I apologize Don't for that. Uh, we, do have, we do have Amazon now uh, responding uh, to the FTC antitrust suit. Uh, Deirdre Bosa has that for us, D. That's right. That suit that was filed just about 20 minutes ago. This can be attributed to David Zapolsky. That's Amazon's senior vice president of global public policy and the company's general policy, general counsel. Excuse me. I'm going to read you the whole statement. It says today's suit makes clear the FTC's focus has radically departed from its mission of protecting consumers and competition. It says the practices the FTC is challenging have helped to spur competition and innovation across the retail industry and have produced greater selection, lower prices, and faster delivery speeds for Amazon customers and greater opportunity for the many businesses that sell in Amazon's store. It goes on to say, if the FTC gets in its way, the result would be fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for consumers, and reduced options for small businesses. The opposite of what antitrust law is designed to do. The lawsuit filed by the FTC today is wrong on the facts and the law, and we look forward to making that case in court. So lengthy statements, Scott, but Amazon here is making the point that its ecosystem essentially lowers prices for consumers and gives opportunities to small businesses by putting them on the platform. So it's hitting back pretty hard here, which is not unexpected for sure. We'll see how this plays out in the months and years ahead. As you guys noted, the stock was already down, hasn't really done much because investors know that this stuff takes time and the FTC hasn't been particularly uh, successful so far in its cases against big tech. Yeah, and they've, all, they've also seen the playbook uh, play out. Uh, in many respects over the last many years. Dee, thank you. That's Georgia Post. So let's take a break. When we come back, our call of the day. It is one of the biggest Dow laggards this year. Goldman Sachs is staying bullish on it despite a slew of recent downgrades. Steph owns it. We debate it next. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? 
Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, it's a red Tuesday, as you saw. How about Nike? Let's show the shares. There they are. Not doing much. Um, they've done a lot lately, though. Mostly go lower. <laughs> so, Steph, <laughs> Goldman Sachs today, call the day, reiterates Nike as a buy. They have a 60% upside to their price target, 145. Okay? Mm-hmm. In what has been a really negative environment, at least I mean, stock performance, Wall Street commentary has been kind of brutal. What do we do with this? I mean, it started with Foot Locker, right? I mean, that's what, that's what started the decline. This stock was really a good one the first half of this year, right? And then it rolled over. It rolled over hard. Wasn't there, wasn't, what are we talking? I'm sorry to interrupt you. Wasn't there a stretch? We are talking about Nike where it had like 11 straight days of yes. losses, like the longest streak that's yes. had forever, right? Yes. Now it's on pace for its eighth straight. I know. So it's, it goes through these stretches. Now, you must think that these are buying opportunities, that the stock's cheap. Uh, you know, that's the problem. It's not that cheap P.E. No, it's not. That's that's the problem, right? Um, it's a compounder over the years. This is a longer-term call for me. Um, it's been disappointing for sure, but you've had a, a derating in the stock. On average, the stock trades at 28 times forward. It's now at 24 times. Very rarely does it trade in this area, and that's because it is the number one company in the industry. 78% foot, uh, footwear share, right, around the world. They do have exposure to, to China, which you know I actually like the consumer recovering in China. I don't like China per se, but I think the reopening will help. Um, I like their brands. I like their innovation. And I do think that one of the problems that these guys have seen over the last couple of years are depressed margins. We talk about it all the time. EBIT margins are 11%. If, if you believe, like I do, they can get back to the upper teens, this stock has earnings power of $6.50. You're at three and change right now. Over the next couple of years, how is EBIT margin, how are they going to get better? Well, you got lower freight costs, lower input costs. We'll see what happens with the dollar. That'll be a problem. But inventories are coming down. Inventories were down double digits in greater China and the U.S. last quarter, right? And they're flat overall for the company. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were so bloated a year ago. So, so there's a lot that they can do right and I still think they are the dominant player in the industry. It's Nike. Right. Say no more. Just do it. <laughs> Just buy it or no? Josh Brown. I, I want Stephanie to make money here, and I think ultimately she will. Technically, this is a falling knife. It's a new low now. I think I, if, if you want to buy the stock, and there's a lot of compelling reasons to want to buy the stock on historical valuation, I think there will be a chance. I just would say not yet and definitely not into this earnings. Your risk is they have an amazing quarter. The stock gaps up 10 percent and then probably by the end of the day fades and loses half of that. And then you say, oh, I could have bought it at 90. It's 92. Like that's your risk here um, in, in not getting in. Your risk to the downside, I feel, is greater. I think it's also worth pointing out over the summer. A uh, analyst at, at Cowan came out and pointed out that if you look at Hoka, and on running, a stock which I should have made money with, but I sold too early. But if you look at those two names, he pointed out they spent the equivalent of two weeks worth of Nike's marketing budget over the course of four years and managed to steal $3 billion worth of sales from, from Nike. 
and, and he referred to it as an unchecked competitive environment. And I know Nike's had competitors its whole life, so that's not new. But if you combine that with the fatigue, don't, don't forget how many sneakers people bought during the pandemic. You com- so that's the real inventory, not inventory in stores, inventory in people's closets, or in my case, in the garage. We're not allowed to wear shoes in the house. High sprinkles. Um, but if you, if you think about the sheer amount of, of athletic clothing and shoe buying during the pandemic, that inventory has to work itself off, and that could take a while. So I think Steph will make money here. I just feel like it's going lower before it goes higher. You feel like, I feel like you almost alluded to complacency from the company to its potential competition. It's tough. They're, they're an incumbent. And Nike, you know, spent a lot of its early life as like this upstart brand that was willing to do dangerous things with their marketing, et cetera. That's obviously not going to be the situation now, but they are the best shoe company on earth. The fundamentals are still very good. I just think it's it's a tough situation where they are right now. And I hear in the what calendar. you're saying on Hoka because I actually wear them. And I know I, I know you so, do. I can and so I hear that. you on that. Um, and on, I haven't tried those yet either. But I you know you turned me on to that like, too. Like butter. But you're talking like two percent market share. No, I understand. You know what I mean? Like, come on. I understand. Seventy-eight or two. I understand. Somewhere in the middle, right? And this stock is pricing in like it's losing massive, massive yeah. share. I just don't think that's the case. All right, let's get the headlines now from Silvana Hanau. Hey, Silvana. Hey, Scott, the U.S. is calling on Azerbaijan to protect the rights of civilians and to let aid in as Armenian families flee their homes. The Armenian Foreign Ministry said more than 13,000 people have arrived in Armenia from a separatist region after Azerbaijan launched an offensive last week. At least 20 people were killed and nearly 300 wounded overnight in a blast at a gas station around 20 miles from the region's capital. Seven candidates have qualified for the second Republican presidential debate. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson is the only candidate who didn't make the cut after the first debate. Former President Donald Trump has once again opted out and will hold campaign events in Michigan. And chipmaker NVIDIA recently reached a $1 trillion valuation. And to celebrate today, it's returning to its roots by throwing a party at Denny's in San Jose. That's where the founders launched the company 30 years ago, Scott. Silvana, thank you. Yes. Silvana now with the headlines for us. Up next, two bullish calls on the only positive sector this month. We'll see where the committee stands on that trade in just a couple minutes. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. All right, energy pulling back today. It's still the only positive sector this month. Uh, Marco Kalanovic, J.P. Morgan, turning bullish once again on the global energy complex. Keith Lerner of Truist upgrades energy. We're using the recent pullback to upgrade the sector from neutral to overweight. Liz Young. 
Um, are we jumping on the bandwagon here or is this legit? I think, I think some of people are jumping on a bandwagon. Steph and I were talking about this at the break, and now it's, I'm nervous. Everybody's on it, right? And it's the only positive sector, so it looks like, well, why not? Of course we want to buy that. Mm-hmm. I still do like it. I've used it as my final trade a few times over the last couple months. Part of it is the sector is cheap, right? And it's not necessarily cheap for a reason. You could say that about financials, too, but I think right now financials are cheap for a reason. Energy is cheap. You've got shareholder-friendly actions and companies, and the companies are lagging oil prices that have gone up. Oil prices have gone up because of supply constraints, not necessarily demand. So a lot of people would look back at me and say, well, you're bearish on the economy. How can you be bullish on energy? Well, because it's it's being driven by supply right now, not necessarily demand. So I am still constructive on the sector, but it has gone pretty far pretty quickly. Wouldn't be surprised to see a little cooling off. Hand, hand went in the air. Yeah, well, no, I, w- I, was, I was waving a mic. But I would, I would say WTI just made another high for 2023, and now we're approaching those summer 2022 levels. Mm-hmm. And that's with overall inflation cooling off, or, or at least not accelerating higher as it was. I think this is its own story. And I think if you break this year in half, because yes, some of these stocks have really big gains, but that's just recent. Year to date, the median return for the XLE names is only plus 4%. Actually, they are trailing the market, definitely trailing NASDAQ. Now, over the last quarter and a half, um, median return for XLE is like 16%. So that's that rally that Liz is referring to. And for sure, these stocks have caught fire. They've definitely become more exciting because they're one of the few things going up since August 1st. But I don't think that's a reason not to be in the trade because the fundamentals and technicals are both lining up. So I continue to stay here. I'm playing it via... Uh, RIG, which is Transocean, which is hugely speculative. Please don't follow me into it. But I also own IEO, which is a more conservative way of getting exposure. These, and I like these, that too. These companies are just printing money. Free cash flow is mm. off the charts. Schlumberger last quarter, SLB last quarter, did mm-hmm. a billion in their quarter alone. Um, and and you're getting 19. You pay a little premium because it's number one, 19 times, right? But for mid-20s EBITDA growth, if you want to get a discount on the oil services companies, I would look at Halliburton, which is trading at 14 times, and it's lagged um, Schlumberger substantially. But, I mean, Chevron's at 12 times, and it gives you uh, about almost a 4% dividend yield, and they are a very diversified company. Um, Diamondback Energy, pick an EMP, right? Is it Devon? Is it EOG? Is it Diamondback? They're all returning cash to shareholders while keeping production actually tame. What if what if the getting is good? I hear you for all the reasons why, but the runway of opportunity is short. Once real concerns come in about a potential recession or even more dramatic global slowdown, supply it's only story, a matter more of than time. A demand story, so it's a supply trumps everything. I think Steph. so. It'll fall. Oil prices will fall if we go into a global recession. There's no question about it. That's why these are cyclical companies, right? And that's why that's why they do trade at the multiples they do. No, but I don't. I'm talking like, like I, I, I'm wondering if it, if the cyclical nature of these is a matter of months rather than a longer stretch because of those concerns that may still be to come. It, well, you know, it all depends on your outlook on the economy, right? I mean, Scott, I mean, I, I don't think we're going to be into a recession in the next six to eight months. Is it a year from now? Is it two years from now? I don't know. But we're going to slow. But, yeah, it is supply demand. There's very little supply. There's a lot of demand right now. I mean, there's even stronger than expected demand coming out of China. And that's surprising, Doesn't too. Doesn't $100 seem like it's a, almost like a magnet right now? That's yeah. like where everyone's target is. $100 oil. 
These yep. stocks, these stocks, they may not be substantially higher on $100 oil. They'll be higher. Yeah, but free cash flow, I mean, that drives the day, right? And Caterpillar has said, the management has said their sweet spot of mm-hmm. where oil should be, where they like it, is like 80 to 90. Yeah. They don't want it at 50, and they don't want it at 100. They want it somewhere in between. All right. Uh, we're losing a little bit today in the market, as you know. But coming up, we're going to be talking about winning. Because coming up, NFL front office veteran and three-time Super Bowl winner, Michael Lombardi joins us live at Post 9. His lessons in leadership from a three-decade career in the league, the big league. Halftime is back right after this. We're back. Winning one Super Bowl hard enough. Three is pretty rare, as you know. Our next guest, though, has done just that. As an executive under three of the most legendary names in the game of football. Michael Lombardi is the author of Football Done Right, setting the record straight on the coaches, players, and history of the game. He's here at Post 9. Uh, welcome. It's good to see you. Thank you. No relation to Vince Lombardi. Let's just get that. Get on. No. You should just tell people. Well, absolutely. you know, really, my last name's Smith, and I changed it when I was early, you know. So I look like a Smith, don't I? All right. So yeah. I mentioned three Super Bowls under three legends, Bill Walsh, Al Davis, mm-hmm. uh, and Belichick. Yeah. Um, that's pretty remarkable to work under I've, all three. I'm curious as to what you took away from, from those experiences. Well, I think all three of them had this incredible ability. You know how Steve Jobs describes focus as the ability to block out things that may be helpful but aren't helpful to the moment and those three gentlemen all kept the main thing the main thing all the time and their focus was constantly and Belichick still is on what is most important I mean the Eisenhower mantra you know the list the urgent and important that applies to all three and that's how they behaved and so they never really got distracted by other things that kind of set them off course and they were devoted to the game. Al Davis told me once, he said, you don't work in the NFL, you live in the NFL. And I think all three of those lived in the NFL. You're wearing the, the fruits of um, your labor and one of those Super Bowl wins, obviously, the one where the Patriots beat the Falcons yeah. after trailing 28-3. Um, that thing's like the size of an aircraft carrier. <laughs> What's the state of coaching in the league today? Does it measure up? Now, take Belichick out of it because he's still coaching, obviously. But, you know, you, you had some amazing coaches back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could we could go through the list. Parcells, Joe Gibbs, yeah. et cetera, Ditka, et cetera. We, we, we've subcontracted it a little bit into the sense that the job is so overwhelming. With the, the owners have hired coordinators to be head coaches, missing the element of leadership. I think it's one of the things that prevents the, the, the minority candidates to get ahead because we're not spending enough time on leadership. Back in the day, leadership was important. Parcells led. Gibbs was a leader. They also called plays, but they also led. And I think we need to spend more time developing that. Ex-players are good at understanding the craft, but leadership is a whole element that you have to spend time on. In my first book, Gridiron Genius, I spent a lot of time on that in terms of culture and why those three guys were able to win because they set the culture. What do you think uh, of the, the season as it's got underway here is the most interesting storyline from the perspective of somebody who's actually lived in the game for your yeah. whole life? Uh, taking Kelsey and Taylor Swift out of the equation. <laughs> no, no, you can keep it. <laughs> no, I think there's parity. I think there's parity. Burt Bell, the man who discovered the draft in 1946, talked about on any given Sunday. I think yeah. we learned it. I think every year it's so close. Like you can't, other than the Miami 70 to 30 win, 30-20 win, excuse me. Uh, there really hasn't been a dominating team. Philly played a good last night, but they weren't as dominating as they were last year. So I think parity rings true. I don't, I don't think you could sit here and say in, in September, this team's going to win the Super Bowl. I think there's some potential teams, and there's some teams you can eliminate, but that's what makes the league so good. That's what makes it so exciting, because nobody really knows the outcome. 
You know, you think you know the outcome until the Cardinals upset the Cowboys. What do you make of the look? You 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 work for DraftKings in a sense as a podcast host, and you own shares in the company as a result. I think of that. But what do you think of the proliferation of gambling uh, in in the NFL? Both on the the, the way that the, the league has embraced it like never before, <laughs> but also in the way that some players have been punished for gambling, while at the same time the league has wrapped its arms around it. Well, in 1975, here in New York City, the NFL Today started on CBS, and Brett Musburger, who actually works for the owns the company that I work for, it's part of the DraftKings network called Veasan. He had Jimmy the Greek on. And they quietly talked about the gambling aspect. And I wrote about it in this new book about how back then it was something that they couldn't say the lines or any of that, but they talked about who was going to win the game. And that propelled the sport tremendously. It really has. It brought more interest in, just like fantasy football has developed the sport into this high level. And I think it's only good for the game. Now, I think there's mechanics that everybody has to work around and there's protocols that you have to go through. But I think it's it's just generated more and more interest in the sport. And we see teams, you know, the Washington football team sold for over $6 billion. The value of the interest of the fans is increasing every single day. We talk about numbers uh, literally all day long. Uh, every day that yeah. we are on, on the air. Um, the NFL, to me, has embraced numbers like never before in terms of analytics. Yeah. Um, is that good or bad? You see a, a coach, for example, it's late in the fourth quarter, yeah. his team's ahead, he goes for it on fourth down in his own area of the field because the analytics suggest that it's the right thing to do. Have we gone too far. I, I think we, we've leave a big segment out. There, let, let's take, for example, on Sunday, the Chargers have the ball at their own 24. How did you know I was referring to the Chargers? Fourth and one. <laughs> With Iron Genius, that's how. Fourth and one. And they put up a graphic that says if they go for it, it's 88% successful, they win. If they punt, it's 82%. But they don't complete the sentence. What play do we run at 88%? The Chargers had 14 carries for 30 yards in the game. They only had seven incomplete passes. If they throw a pass, they're going to win the game. If they run the ball, they're going to get stopped. What did they do? They run the ball, they got stopped. So analytics has to be applied to the game, not to all the games. It's what's happening at the game today that matters most. It's the same thing in your profession. What's mattering in the market today applies to the analytics. You can't take the numbers and apply them, oh, because they did this you know, 20 years ago, we should do this. No, you have to apply it. And I think that's the missing link. you got to answer the question. If we go for it, what's the play? Mm. Best of luck with the book. Thank you so that's much. That's Mike Lombardi. Appreciate you being here. Football Done Right uh, is the name of the book. Be sure, by the way, to catch the NFL on NBC this Sunday night. Got a good one. Kansas City Chiefs taking on the New York Jets. Who's a quarterback going to oh, be? Hmm. Don't go there. <laughs> Tom Brady. The Swifties going to be at the game. Hmm, I don't know. Coverage 7 p.m. Eastern, NBC and Peacock, of course. Up next, Michael Santoli. He'll join us with his midday word. We're back after this. All right, we're back, and our senior markets commentator is right there, Mike Santoli. Uh, what's, your, uh, what's your midday word today? What's on your mind? 
Well, obviously sloppy, but not panicky. It was it's kind of the market tone today, but some also very interesting wrinkles. The, things like the pure value index is holding up relatively well. Regional banks have done fine this week. Uh, it seems as if there's a bit of a pile on on the big index names to the downside. Once you get below a 5% pullback on a closing basis, you often have to see things to get genuinely oversold. So we're working on that. I think the conditions are rounding into place. Not quite there. Final point is, I think for whatever you think about Jamie Dimon talking about a 7% Fed funds rate, I think it's a good thing when everyone starts to say, oh, no, there's no end in sight. Yields can only go higher from here because it shows you that the psychology started to over-extrapolate the move. We'll see uh, if that, in fact, uh, eventually puts a cap on yields, which is what we're trying to digest in here. Can the economy handle where yields are? Yeah, I'm, you know, obviously, you know, Dimon says things that, you know, make us talk. Um, whether it's the hurricane comment yeah. that certainly we spent a bunch of time talking about wondering how bad this might get as the Fed was on its, you know, uh, a path of raising rates to this degree. And, and now he's throwing another one out there for for us to think about, though. For sure. And I also think you have to take it as it was delivered, which is, you know, risk management. He, you know, he owned, he's he has runs the bank that's going to be there when all the banks are gone, if something awful happens. And that's his whole brand. That's his whole orientation. Be ready for stuff you never thought could happen. Great. That's a, that's an interesting premise to keep on the side. It's not a prediction. And again, though, I think when the talk gets in that direction or even a lot of technical targets saying 10 year goes to 5.2 uh, right now, that could very well happen. I'm just saying that the psychology has changed faster than the realities of the economy or the Fed policy have changed. That's usually what gets the markets to overshoot in one direction or yeah. another. See you back in a couple hours. Appreciate it. That's Mike Santoli. Final trades are next. Watching shares of Amazon, of course, today under a bit of pressure, already were, uh, really, before this news even came out, uh, that the FTC was uh, suing Amazon uh, antitrust. And by the way, tomorrow, FTC Chair Lena Khan is going to join Squawk Box at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Do not miss that. We're back with Final Trades next. All right, closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. Look forward to it. Adam Parker with me, Alicia Levine, and Kevin Simpson always has some new moves in the market. He'll update us on what he is doing today as well. Final trades. Liz Young, what do you have for us? I've got utilities today. I'm watching that slow rise in the VIX, the re-steepening of the yield curve, and I think the sector leadership could switch. Okay, good stuff. Stephanie Link. IBM, it's only up 2% year-to-date, but it's up 25% from its recent lows. It trades at 15 times earnings, good yield, and I like the software and consulting mix, which is 75% of total revenue. Okay, JB. If you've been hiding out in money markets or cash, consider lengthening your duration a little bit. The SHY, one to three-year treasury bonds, current SEC yield is 5%. No shoes in the house, we clear? No shoes in the house ever, (laughs) ever. Guys, want to make sure. All right, good. Thank you. Thanks for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its 
completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report disclaimer. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.